If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Welcome to the Truth In My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about textual criticism. This is the field of study through which we can know the original text of the New Testament. We are continuing from the previous episode today. Now that will give you about one error for every 17 words. This is extremely sloppy manuscript, but hey... We're going to give every opportunity to the other side. So let's go with one error every 10 words. Okay? A level of carelessness that you don't find any real-life manuscript remotely approaching. Okay, so let's go with one, one error for every 10 words. Now, let's suppose, you take the original, let's suppose only five copies of the original were made. Only five copies. Well, if only five copies were made of the original... For an error, a variant, a wrong reading, to infect the majority of manuscripts, you would have to get into at least three of those five, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. And, and that would just be a bare majority, 60%. It would, to get to an 80% dominance, you need in four out of five. But let's say just a bare majority. What are the chances that scribes would make a mistake at the same point in three copies? Remember, these, these are random errors. So what are the chances? It's random, so you can calculate the same way you calculate tossing dice. Oh, so so one-tenth to the power of three, then? Yeah, one-tenth times one-tenth, because his chance of making an error at this point in, in one manuscript is one out of ten. The chance of making an error in the very same spot in another manuscript is one out of ten. And the chance of doing it in a third manuscript is one out of ten. So it comes to one out of a thousand. So it's the chance that any mistake could get like a 60% dominance would be one in a thousand. And it wouldn't be enough to make a mistake at the same point. It would have to be the same mistake and different categories of mistake, like spelling errors, word substitutions, inverted orders, and so on. So it would be less than actually than one in a thousand. Now, that's the first generation. Out of those five copies made of the first of the original, Let's suppose five copies are made of each of these, these so-called first-generation copies, the five from the original. If we make five copies of each of those, there will be 25 second-generation copies, right? Mm -hmm. Five of the first, five of the second, five of the third, five of the fourth, five of the fifth, that's 25. Now, if you want to infect a majority of manuscripts, you want to get a reading that's wrong but comes to dominate the majority of the manuscript tradition, at this point, in the second generation, you would have to enter at least 13 of them. And again, that would just be a bare majority. If you want like an 80% dominance, it would have to be a lot more. But 13. So what is the chance the scribes would make a mistake at the same point in 13 copies? Calculate the same way we did before, except now you need it in 13 copies. So 1 tenth times 1 in 10 times 1 in 10 times 1 in 10 times 1 in 10. Times one in ten, 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 thirteen times. Which will come out to one in ten million million. 
So what are the chances of a mistake being introduced in the second generation ever dominating the majority? I guess Mexico? it just wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. One in ten million million. Okay? And that would have to be the same mistake in all of the 13 corrupted copies. Now, let's suppose that there were 10 copies made of the original, not five. The odds of an error infecting the majority of manuscripts at that point is one in 100 million. Okay, one in 100 million. So it's not going to happen. Okay, the expected return is 0.14 errors. Expected return means if that's the odds of it's one in a million, if you have 140,000 words in the New Testament, how many errors should you get with those odds? 0.14. So it's 14% of one word would be expected to be wrong. And that's if there were 10 copies made of the original. The second generation, assuming 10 copies of each of those, the chance of that would have to get a 51 of them would be a trillion times a trillion times, one in a trillion times a trillion times a trillion times a billion times a million. Not going to happen. Yeah, but but once you get past the, the first generation, are they all that independent? Because if there's an error in one from the first generation, then... How come those are all counted independently once you get to the Yes, second? yes, those will be carried on. So any mistake entered in the first generation would then be carried on, if we ignore cross-correction, because oftentimes scribes check more than one manuscript. But if we ignore that, then yes, any mistake made in that first generation would be then carried on into all the copies made from it going forward. But think about it. If you have five copies and you have a mistake in one of them, that's 20%. It'll be in 20% of manuscripts. Then the five, there's five copied from them. All five will have it, but now there's 25 copies. So five out of 25 is still only 20%. By the time you get down to the next generation, it'll be 125 of them, but out of 625, it's still only 20%. So, so then it's not like your example where with each generation, the number keeps getting smaller. Yeah, if, if you introduced a manuscript in the second generation, for example, I have 25, an error in one of those second generation manuscripts will only affect 4% because that's only in one out of 25 manuscripts. So all the manuscripts copied from that one will carry it, but it will always be only 1 25th of all of the copies being made. So an error introduced in the first generation could infect 20% of copies with our numbers, but by the second generation, a mistake inserted there could only affect 4% of the copies. Will your calculation be thrown off depending on which manuscripts survive? Like, what if we have, um, for some reason, more of the manuscripts descending from the one with the error surviving? Well, yeah, that's, that's uh, the differential reproduction. However, because... You then have to do the calculations almost called expected return. Because in each generation, the, the percentage of manuscripts with a true reading is becomes larger and larger. You would actually expect that the chances of a manuscript with a poor reading surviving rather than the manuscripts with a good reading surviving becomes less and less and less. The expected return of good copies goes up. If you lose a manuscript without copying it, your number goes down by one. But if you do copy it, you could copy it once, twice, three times, four times. So that's why your, your chances of retaining good copies is always higher than your chances of retaining bad copies. So the differential reproduction, and yes, that's, that's brought up by certain textual critics as well. 
But again, they don't understand the, the whole idea of expected return. And they don't realize that the fact that you could actually copy a manuscript multiple times versus you can only drop the total by one by losing that manuscript means that your chances of, of copying good readings goes higher and higher and higher, not lower and lower and lower. And again, and that was just with five or ten copies of the original. How many would have been made of the original? What would you think? You'd think it would be an awful lot because people saw this as the word of God. It would depend on how long the manuscripts lasted, the original manuscript. A certain early church father called Peter of Alexandria, who died in the year 311, wrote before his death that in his day, the original copy of the gospel according to John was still kept in the church at Ephesus, and people would go to see it. Well, if, if John was written in 65 and it's still around in the year 300, then how long has it lived? It lasted at least 235 years. How many copies would you make of it in that time? A lot more than 10. And so there you go. When Westcott and Hort wrote this, and we read this out before, a theoretical presumption indeed remains that a majority of extant documents is more likely to represent majority of ancestral documents at each stage of transmission and vice versa. But this presumption is too minute to weigh against the smallest tangible evidence. What does that mean? When he says too minute, based on what? He didn't do any kind of mathematical analysis of this. He had no basis for saying it's too minute. And furthermore, it's not theoretical. If you focus on the readings rather than on the entire document, this is based on solid mathematical footing genuine scientific data handling. And as we've seen, that so-called theoretical presumption is not minute at all. It's decisive. Okay? And that, that's, it's not surprising, perhaps, that Westcott and Hoare would say such a thing, and it's repeated by other textual critics. They are not trained in mathematics. They should be. The upshot of what we've seen, of all this, is that the chance of any erroneous reading ever being found in a majority of manuscripts, especially ever being found like in 80%, 90%, 95% of manuscripts, is vanishingly small. And unlike the, the claims of the mainstream textual critics, what I'm saying is not a fiat proclamation. It is a conclusion based on actual mathematics, actual statistical analysis. The fact that textual critics are not trained in this doesn't change the reality. Okay? What this means is that in textual criticism... The focus should be on the readings, not on the manuscripts in which they are found. Find the reading that is in the majority of the manuscripts. You will have the original reading. You'd have to have a huge burden of proof. If you want to argue for any minority reading, you have a huge burden of proof to argue for it. And it would have to be done on the basis of genuine facts, not on the basis of canons pulled off the top of his head by an 18th century German rationalist. Sorry, that's just not good enough. So, yes, you can. We can get back to the original New Testament text, regardless of the claims, again, of modern textual criticism that, well, we can only try to get close to it, as close as we can. So, despite the facts that we've outlined above, liberal scholars continue, as always, using the canons, Greasebox canons, and champion, championing an errant text based on corrupted manuscripts while studiously ignoring the Byzantine manuscripts. This is not surprising. Uh, what's surprising and disappointing to me is that evangelical scars also continue in these old and incorrect ways. Now, the problem is that the paradigm assumptions of textual criticism were set by liberal scholars. 
And evangelical scholars are taught these in seminary as axioms, axiomatically true, and they've accepted them without any serious question. They've not looked into the basis for these claims. They just accept them. And once they've absorbed the scholarly orthodox in this field, they tend not to be willing to re-examine them, regardless of what kind of evidence is brought up against them. I'll tell you a funny story like this. I don't want to mention any names because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But I, I, I had a professor at uh, when I was at OTS who taught us this and taught us textual criticism. And I, I had a go at him in class. We had an assignment to just write a, a term paper on textual criticism. I was very taken when I started studying this field because I'd never expected to find a field so full of unexamined assumptions, sloth, and I'd have to say outright deception in some cases, as I did in creation evolution. I never thought I'd find another field like that, but I did find it with textual criticism. And we were required to write a six to 10 page paper outlining the basics of textual criticism, I wanted to go at it. And I didn't think six to 10 pages would be adequate. And I asked the professor, can we write more? He said, sure, you can write, make it as long as you want, as long as it's good stuff, because I don't want to waste my time reading junk. Mm -hmm. Wow, um, perhaps you shouldn't have said that. I spent my entire Christmas holidays on this, this paper. The six to 10 page paper ended up being more than 100 pages. It got a, got a good mark. But he, he, he wouldn't change his mind on it. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But please join us for the next part. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.